Amen, friends. Let's go. Let's get out our Bibles and let's get into the Word together this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Second uh, Corinthians three. Second Corinthians three is where we're gonna we're gonna kind of actually kind of take a while to get there, and we're gonna be uh, kind of between that and Galatians five. But Second Corinthians three is where we're gonna be first this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible. That's okay. There's a blue one underneath the seat you're sitting in. You can reach down and grab out that blue Bible. And in the blue Bible, 2 Corinthians 3 is on page 1067. 2 Corinthians 3, page 1067. Over the past few weeks, we've been, we've been unpacking this idea of the path of flourishing, right? Our goal, our mission, our vision here at Flourishing Grace is that we would be a church, you would be a people that lead people into flourishing in relationships with Jesus, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, right? That you would that you would lead them into flourishing relationships with Jesus, while the people around you are also leading you into a flourishing relationship with Jesus. That you would have a relationship with Jesus that brings delight and joy to your life, right? Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? That you would have a relationship with Jesus that is, that is, that is building this life of abundance in you, right? Not, not a life of abundance of wealth or prosperity, but a life of joy and delight and satisfaction and contentment in our King, right? A path of flourishing, that we would walk this path together, right? And for so many of us in this room, if you, in fact, for all of us, for all of us in this room, if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, I know not everybody is, not everybody watching online is, right? But if you, if you are, if you're a Christian, there's a moment in your life that you can, that you can pinpoint, right? It might be a season, it might be an exact millisecond, right? I don't know, but there's a moment in your life that you can pinpoint, which you could say, man, something in me shifted. Something in me changed. I am not the same person I was before this moment or this season of time. Uh, my life changed in that moment. My behavior changed. My affections and my desires changed. Something in me changed in that moment of my life. And I, like, I'm, I'm different than I was before that. There's something that cha- in me changed. The shift is marked by new behaviors and new desires, right? I had new behaviors. I have new desires. I was doing things that I never did before. I was desiring things that I never desired before. But ultimately, the shift is not, um, it's, it's not a result of new behaviors and new desires. They, those are the result. The root of it is this. A new love for Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, there's a moment in your life when you fell in love with Jesus. There's a moment in your life when he became precious to you. There's a moment in your life when, when you stared at his grace and, it, and you were awakened to his grace. And you, and you stepped out of spiritual darkness and you were led into spiritual light by his mercy and by his kindness. And in that moment, you fell in love with him. Your behaviors changed and your affections changed. Now, if, if you sit here this morning and say, I am a, I am a Christian but I don't, I don't have that moment. I don't remember any time when I actually fell in love with Jesus. I don't remember that season in my life. I don't remember that moment in my life. I don't remember my behaviors or my affections ever changing. Right? But I'm a Christian. Now, I, I want to challenge you this morning to, to, to really struggle and wrestle with that question. Are you, are you actually a Christian? Or are you just saying that you are? I know that for some of you, maybe for many of you, that sounds harsh. 
that might cause you to kind of bristle a little bit. It's like, how dare you challenge me one, whether or not I'm a Christian. Friends, listen to me. That is literally my job. That's what you pay me to do, okay? Don't be offended by it. It's out of love. Is there a moment in your life that you can remember falling in love with Jesus, whether over a season of time or in a moment in an instant, that he became your chief joy and your chief delight? If not, if not, you must ask the question, am I really a Christian? There's a moment where, where our loves shift. Our new love for Jesus shifts our behaviors, shifts our actions. Suddenly we want to read the Bible. We want to pray. We, we delight in prayer. We want to be with him. We actually want to journal or meditate on him and on his word. We listen to Christian music. We surround ourselves with others who have this shared love. We want to be around other people who are experiencing and feeling the same thing that we're feeling, the same love, the same shift that's happening in their life. We want to be with them. We want to be around them. We want to sit in the gathering and sing loudly with joy and listen intently as the sermon is preached, scribbling notes and soaking it all in. Recently, this has happened uh, to a few folks here at Flourishing Grace where they've, they've recently just kind of begun to experience this shift where they're loving Jesus for the first time. And suddenly they're like moving closer and closer to the front of the gathering and they're scribbling away in their notebooks and they're asking all these questions and there's this bubbly, there's this excitement, there's this energy within them. They're just, they're just, they're just pumped up. They've fallen in love with Jesus, and they can't get enough, right? They're so curious, and so many questions, and yet it's, it's questions out of, out of love and out of delight and out of excitement, not questions out of kind of this, um, you know, they're, not, they're not trying to kind of disprove anything. There's curious there's wonder, right? We sung about it earlier, right? Wait turns to wonder. For all of us, there's a moment when that happened. And for some of you, it's happening right now, right? It's not religion, it's relationship. We don't, have the, we don't have the weight of religion. We have the, the joy and the wonder of a relationship, a new relationship. Maybe the first time you started dating your spouse, this wonder of a new relationship. It's not duty. It's joy, right? We, we want to do more, but not, not because we feel like we need to. Not because, oh my gosh, God's going to be angry with me if I don't do. No, no, no. I have joy and delight of what God has done for me. I want to do more. I want to joy. It's not obligation, it's infatuation. You don't, you don't write love notes out of obligation. You do it out of infatuation. This delight, this joy of being with Jesus. But then, for so many of us in this room and so many people in our lives who have experienced this moment, over time it begins to fade and over time, it begins to wane, and infatuation turns into obligation, and delight turns into duty, and relationship turns into religion, or nothing at all. For so many of us who have experienced this moment, we call ourselves Christians. Reading the Bible has become hard work for us. It's become something that's easy to put off. Right? When things become busy, it's the first thing that slips. For some of us, we haven't read the Bible regularly in years. Praying only happens before dinner. And even when it does happen, it's just kind of the same thing recited in the same way every time. There's no real relationship, just, just, ha- just kind of going through the motions. 
journaling or meditating. What is that? Nobody, what is that? That's great. Nobody's got time for that. Listening to Christian music, you're like, Christian music is so terrible. I can't stand it. Ugh, the new stuff on the radio. Ugh, who listens to that? So bad. So terrible. Let me challenge you on something. I don't think it is bad. I listen, I see so many people say, I mean, Christian music, music when, I, when I was young, right, whenever that moment was for you, it was so good. It was so good. Oh, it was so, good. so great. But now all this newfangled stuff on the radio, oh, so bad. Oh. They, just, they say the same thing over and over and over. No, no, listen to me. It's not that the music has shifted. It's you that shifted. There was a moment in your life when you desired and you delighted in hearing the sweetness and the glory of Jesus and hearing his name sung, hearing things about him sung, hearing his love for you sung, and your heart resonated with that. But as it fades, so does that desire. And it didn't matter how bad it sounded because I'm telling you, if you became a Christian in the 80s, it was bad, but you loved it. Like, it's so good. No, it wasn't. You're like, no, no, I really like it. No, it's, it's still bad. It's not the music that's shifted. It's you. This week we heard about Bill and Melinda Gates getting a divorce, right? Bill, the founder of Microsoft, um, the, the richest man on the planet, um, and, his, and his wife, Melinda Gates, who is brilliant in her own right, absolutely brilliant woman, um, kind of leading the Gates Foundation, doing humanitarian work all around the globe, massive impact on, on poverty, massive impact on disease, um, doing all these things. Married for 27 years, getting a divorce. 27 years, right? Every time a Christian hears about divorce, right, we, we bristle, and we think, we think oh, gosh, like there's, there's, there's kind of this, there's a, because there's always a sin element to divorce, no matter what, there's always a sin element to that. But when you hear about somebody who's been married for a long time, 27 years is a long time, in a divorce, you're like, wait, what? Even the world around us, even the people who are not followers of Jesus, are like, dude, it's 27 years. Yet why now? The truth is, we all know that if we're not constantly working on our marriages, if we're not putting work into our marriages, over time they will begin to fade. And some just kind of grind it out and say, it's, you know, 27 years, I just got to keep going. Some kind of live separate lives, but yet, you know, remain married. And others, like Bill and Melinda Gates, say, I'm not going to do that. We're going to call it quits. In the same way, a relationship with Jesus takes effort. It takes work. It takes input. Right? Grace is not opposed to effort, friends. It's opposed to earning. We don't earn anything, right? But we must put into it. Discipleship is not a moment or a season of time, but rather a lifelong journey of walking with Jesus. This is why we call it the path of flourishing, not the path to flourishing, right? The whole thing is flourishing. The whole thing is just one step of flourishing into another step of flourishing, growing in our relationship with Him. If we don't take the sustaining of our relationship with Jesus seriously, it will not sustain. If we don't take the sustaining of our relationship with Jesus seriously, it will not sustain. So all the things we've talked about the past few weeks, right, this idea of being called out of, as disciples, this need to come after him, to follow after him, to take up our cross, to, to leave the world behind and to follow up to Jesus, to be with him, and to do the things that he did, right? There's a moment where that's exciting for us. But if we do not take the sustaining of that seriously, it will not sustain. It cannot sustain. So the question is, well, how do we sustain it? What do we do to kind of see this through through the next 27 years or more or less? What do we do to kind of reinvigorate that, our, our love for Jesus 
And how do we sustain that over the next 27 years? Here's the answer. You don't. You can't. You can't do it. Last week we talked about doing what Jesus did, right? And we talked about, I mean, Jesus did so many different things, so many things, right? And we want to do all the things that Jesus did. But last week we kind of funneled it down into two things, right? Into the two great commandments, to love God and to love people. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one singular God who's worthy of all of our love and all of our affection, all of our delight, right? And to love our neighbor as ourself, right? That comes from... At least the first part comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. It reads this way, Deuteronomy 6, um, verse 4 through 9, reads this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Now he goes on, now listen to this. We didn't get, unpack this last week, right? We were reading, reading Jesus' kind of quote of Deuteronomy 6.4 last week, but, he, but Moses goes on and says this, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Right. So here's, here is kind of the the means to sustaining this over time. You have people who have just been given the law, right? Just given the law. Here it is. Here's how we're going to develop and foster intimacy with God. And here's how we're going to walk in obedience to Him. And here's how we're going to be set apart from the rest of the world. People have just been given the law. It says, all right, here's how we're going to sustain it. We're going to literally bind it to our hands. We're going to bind it to our heads and put it as a front lip between our eyes. And in ancient Israel, and if you even go to Israel today, you'll see men walking around, devout Jews walking around with little boxes on their forehead with the law inside of the box. And bindings on their arms, the law bound to their arms. You go to their homes, you'll see it inscribed on the doorpost of their house. It's everywhere. And they're to talk about it constantly, meditate on it constantly, when they're sitting, when they're, when they're walking, when they're lying down, teaching it to their children so that from a young age, we're going to grow our kids up and they're going to be the most disciplined kids on the planet. And they're going to love the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their might. Right? That's how we're going to do it. We're going to be obedient to people. These are incredibly disciplined people. Now, Ten Commandments. What's the first one? Flourishing grace. What's the first commandment? Yes, somebody said it. No other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Yes. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, ancient Israel, the most disciplined people on the planet, they're binding it on their foreheads, they're binding it on their arms, all right? Listen, did they ever break that commandment? Yeah, a lot. Constantly. All the time. They can't even get the first commandment, let alone the rest. Like, like listen, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. This, you can, this is behavioral modification taken to the most intense level. I mean, I'm going to bind it on my forehead. I'm going to bind it on my arm. 
going to write it on my house so that every day when I leave my house, I see it. Whenever day when I come home, I see it. I'm going to pound it into my kids from a young age so that when they grow up, they'll be obedient to it. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So how are you going to sustain this over the long haul? How are you going to reinvigorate? How are you going to renew your love for Jesus? How are you going to sustain that love over the long haul? You are not. You've got to swallow that pill. You're not going to do it. Behavioral modification does not work. It doesn't work. It leads to legalism, hypocrisy, or both. Right? It leads to people, and you see them, you know them, my neighbor. Like, I know these people who, who, who their lives are a wreck, but, they, but on the outside, they're just constantly working so hard to fake it, to show everybody around them, look at, that, look at how good I'm doing it, following all the rules. But inside, they're just dead, weary. There's a weight to them. There's no wonder left. Just weight. The weight of faking it. We, what we need is heart modification. There must be an inward transformation of the heart where our hearts and our minds become that of the same mind and the same heart of Christ. This is what must happen in us. We need a heart modification. It cannot be just in our behaviors. We can't, we can't white-knuckle this. Our hearts and our minds must change, be modified into the same heart and the same mind Christ. Otherwise, we will wake up one day and we will realize that we have lived our whole lives saying that we are Christians. But we never lived with Jesus. We never did what Jesus did. And we look nothing like him. We've said again and again and again, 76% of Americans, 76% of Americans say, I'm a Christian. 76%. But when you begin to probe and you say, are you doing the things that Christians do? And the bar on this is really low. Are you going to church? Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Like, that's the question. It drops to 8%. 8% of Americans are actually kind of living out their faith, right? 8%. 76% say, man, I'm in. But only 8% are actually saying, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm walking with Jesus. If we are not careful, we will wake up one day and we'll realize that we are part of the 76%, not the 8%. So what do we do? What do we do? Let's look at that text together that I gave you earlier, 2 Corinthians 3. For those of you who are following along in your Bible, 2 Corinthians 3, we're going to pick up in verse 12. Again, in the Blue Bible, it's on page 1067. Paul writes this, Since we have such a hope, right? He's writing to Christians. Since we have such a hope, right? We know Jesus We have been called out of spiritual darkness and brought into spiritual life. We've been rescued and redeemed. We have an eternal, secure hope, a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor of the soul. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put the veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant... The same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Friends, only through Christ, only through Christ, only through Christ is it taken away. If you, if you highlight or you underline your Bible, highlight or underline that. You can not do it. Only through Christ is the veil taken 
away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. So it's a problem of the mind, it's a problem of the heart. But when one turns to the Lord, when one turns to Christ, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. Jesus is the remover of the veil, only through Christ. Whenever someone comes to the Lord, right, on that day, whenever someone comes to the Lord, the veil is removed. The bridegroom lifts the veil, right? And in that moment, we behold, as Paul says, we behold the glory of the Lord. We, we are a people, apart from Christ, we are people who are unable to see the beauty, unable to see the splendor, unable to see the majesty, unable to see the mystery that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the glory of Jesus Christ. We're unable to see it. It's foolishness to those who are outside of Christ. But when we come to Christ, when we're brought to Christ, and Christ lifts the veil, we can see with unveiled faces the glory of the Lord, the splendor of Christ. When we come to the place where we acknowledge that we are a sinful people and our sin has veiled our hearts and veiled our minds from seeing the beauty and the wonder of our Creator and our Maker who has made us to live and to walk in His image. And we repent of our sin and we confess that Jesus Christ is king, that he has died on the cross and he's risen from the grave to, to, to cover my sin, to, to cancel the debt of my sin, the full punishment of my sin, the full punishment of, the, of my debt on my unpaid, unpayable debt has been laid upon him. And he has taken the beating and the death for my debt. In that moment, the veil is removed and I see the beauty and the wonder and the grace of my king. And this changes everything. This, this, this new gazing upon his glory is what transforms our hearts and transforms our minds. Here's how John Owen, the great Puritan preacher, put it. He said, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live. Herein would I die. Hereon would I dwell in all of my thoughts and my affections until all things below become as dead and deformed things, and in no longer in any way calling out for my affections. Man, they used to know how to write things, right? They used to know how to say things far more beautiful than we got to do today, right? Here's what Owen is saying. He says, man, I, I, when I gaze upon Christ, man, that's where I want to spend my days, with Jesus gazing on his glory, Gazing on his finished work on the cross, gazing on his resurrection, gazing on his life, gazing on his, on his glorified state that is one day going to return for me. I want to gaze on it all. And when I do, when I do, the things of this world that are vying for my heart and vying for my mind become as dead and, and um, distorted things. I don't want them anymore. They're no longer beautiful to me. They're, they're no longer desirous to me. I don't, I, don't, I don't want them anymore. Because there's something that surpasses it by so much, by such a great length, I no longer want them. So the things, that are, the things that are robbing me of my flourishing, the things that are, that, are, that are bringing death to my life, 
I no longer want them. I no longer want them. Freed from a desire. That's where I want to live. That's where I want to spend my days. That's where I want to spend my thoughts. That's where I want to be. This is transformation. This is freedom. To no longer to, to desire to the things that rob us from flourishing because they've shriveled under the all-surpassing beauty of the glory of Christ. This is the life of flourishing that we are all seeking. All of humanity is seeking of this, whether they realize it or not. To be free from sin. From the desires of sin. Only comes through Christ. So how do we attain this freedom? How do we attain it? Look at verse 17. It says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Spirit of the Lord. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, again and again and again, Jesus says, man, I've got to go away. I've got to go. All right, I'm going home to the Father, but the Father is going to send a helper, an adversary, an advocate on your behalf. The Spirit's going to come. He's going to be a helper for you. He's going to help you, right? This is the, 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 the job of the Spirit is to be a helper to us. But the Father sends Christ to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to clothe us in his own righteousness so that he might dwell within us. And so we are a people, when, we are, when the veil is lifted and we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, now the Spirit of Christ can now dwell within us. And can lead us from one degree of glory to another into his image, into his likeness. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit brings us to freedom. The Holy Spirit leads us to greater levels of holiness and purity. The Holy Spirit gives us supernatural Christ-likeness. And supernatural mission-advancing gifts. Enabling us to make disciples of all nations. While guiding us down life-giving paths. The Spirit, from the inside out, is the source of heart modification in mind modification, head modification, right? He's changing the way we think and he's changing the way we act from the inside out by, by increasing our love for Jesus. This is what he is doing. If this, you know, this, the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Holy Spirit is the thing that is going to sustain us for the long haul. And yet the Spirit is the very thing that is so neglected in our Western churches, for a myriad of reasons, either either a some find it um, just kind of too complex. Right? I, I, I don't know. The spirit is just complex. Some people find it too weird. It's weird. Some people are like going out of their way to make it weird. Right? There are churches out there that just make this so weird. Um, this is this is for free. Um, I watched a video this week. You can thank Josh Gardner, our student minister, for this one. Uh, he sent me a video. He showed me a video. Of, just, just Google this later. Not now. Don't do it now. Do not do it now. Okay? You promise? After we're done, for Mother's Day, treat yourself. Google Bimmy Hin lightsaber. Just, okay, that's for free. Do that later, and you'll understand why, what I'm saying. Man, people make this so creepy. Okay, listen. Just Google It's for free. It's amazing. All right? You'll, you'll love it. All right? There's, there's people out there, like the Benny Hens of the world, who'd make this so just stupid, just so dumb. They take the life-giving power of the Spirit of God that is indwelling every follower of Jesus, that Jesus has given his life, that he might reside in us, and they, they, 
they butcher it. I gotta stop. Um, what does the Spirit do? How does this work? How does, how does this work? Here's what I wanna do. We're out of time already. It's been a long gathering. Quickly, Mother's Day. I wanna get you out of here so you can have brunch and rest up with your family. Galatians 5. I'm gonna walk through it quick, okay? Flip there, if you will, in your Bibles. Galatians 5. We're going to walk through 16 through 25 real quick. I want to give you a, a very, very quick, brief snapshot of the work of the Spirit in our lives and how we can engage in the Spirit. Uh, I wish we had more time, but we don't. So I'm going to give you quickly. Here's what, here's what Paul does in Galatians 5. He kind of gives these three things. We walk by the Spirit, we are led by the Spirit, and we live by the Spirit. Okay? Walk by led by, live by. This is the, what the work of the Spirit is doing in our lives. This was transformative for me, and I think it's transformative really for all of us. When this clicks for you, right, it is a transformative thing. For me, it was early, early as a follower of Jesus. Um, some, some people took me through a book called The Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life by Charles Stanley, okay? Charles Stanley is uh, a TV preacher. He's been on TV for like 100 years. Um, I'm not exaggerating. I think he's been on TV for 100 years. Um, he's still, still doing it. Every, every Sunday from a church in Atlanta, he is, he's in, I think he's in his 90s. He's got to be in his 90s. Um, he's been doing it for a long, 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 long time. He's written so many books, but he wrote a book called The Wonderful Spirit for Life. Um, and it's kind of cheesy. It's very 101, right? It's very 101. In fact, it's, it is cheesy. The back cover of the book is just a gigantic picture of his face, okay? It's just, it's awkward. It's weird. It's purple, all right? Everything about it. That book changed my life. And so I can't, I just can't, I can't. Like, there's something in that book that he said that, that changed everything for me. He said this. He said, to walk by the Spirit is to live with a moment-by-moment -moment dependency on and sensitivity to the initial promptings of the Holy Spirit. To walk by the Spirit is to live with a moment-by-moment -moment dependency on and sensitivity to the initial promptings of the Holy Spirit. That, that changed everything. When I begin to realize that I can walk by the Spirit, I can be led by the Spirit, and I can live by and live with the Spirit, it changes everything. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 5.16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. Right? This is to be something that we do every day, every moment by moment. Right? Charles Stanley says, moment by moment. We are walking with. The Spirit of God is always with us. If you're in Christ, He's always with you, right? But He is to be filling us moment by moment, every single day, walking with Him, engaging with Him, right? Imagine walking with somebody every single day but never acknowledging that they're there. We are to be a people who acknowledge the presence of the Spirit moment by moment, every single day, walking with Him. Meditating on his work in our lives, talking with him, listening for his promptings, and obeying those promptings. And Paul says the first measure, the first measure of this walking with the Spirit, what you're going to notice in your life, right, not because of this, this insane discipline that you have, but because of what the Spirit is doing, there's going to be a diminishment in what Paul says the work, calls the works of the flesh. The Spirit is going to reduce the amount of which you sin. Okay? It's going to reduce the works of the flesh. You will not gratify the desires of your flesh, right? Not, not because, because you, you've figured it out. You become more disciplined than the next person. But because you are walking with the Spirit. And the Spirit is 
helping you to not gratify the desires of your flesh. He goes on in verse 17 and 18. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. They're warring against each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All the things that are robbing you of, the, of your flourishing, the spirit hates those things. He's warring against those things. He's diminishing those things in your life. He goes on to say, But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And he goes on and he lists the works of the flesh, as he calls it, right? These, all of these kind of outcomes of sin, kind of anger and malice and bitterness and greed and jealousy, like all of these outpouring of sin in our lives that we all see in our lives on a regular basis, right? Paul lists them there. But Paul says, man, if, if you are led by the Spirit, you're walking with him and you're actually obeying him, right? You can't just walk with him. You've got to actually listen and obey to the Spirit, right? He is, he, he is navigating this moral minefield of life. All day, every day, we are walking through a moral minefield where things are competing for our formation, competing over the battle of our hearts and our minds to, to, win, us, to, to win us away from Christ, to, to get us to put our hope and our affection and our security and the things of this world, things that are going to di- diminish our flourishing, are all around us all the time, every single day. And you don't even see it. They're buried. They creep in. And before you realize it, it's too late. But the Spirit sees them all. He sees them all. And He has been sent as a helper to help navigate us through this minefield so that we might not gratify the desires of the flesh. He diminishes them. He fixes our gaze on Christ. And he helps us by leading us through. Now, we've got to be obedient to him, right? You can't be like, oh, yeah, yeah, and just go, go do it anyways. But he's pointing out, so don't, don't step there. Don't, don't dwell on that. Don't click on that. Don't, don't think that thought. You're, you're, this is going to make you, if you do this, if you go down this path, here's the result. Leading us every step of the way, moment by moment, dependency on and sensitivity to the initial promptings of the Holy Spirit. He's leading us down life giving paths. Verse 25, skipping down, Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, if we say, man, I, I believe that I cannot do this on my own, I cannot produce this life of flourishing on my own. I have no hope of it, so I need to live by the Spirit. If that's true, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's go where He's going. Let's, let's follow where He's leading. Let's keep in step with the Spirit all day, every day, attuned to Him, acknowledging His presence in our lives. Moment by moment, let's live dependent on Him and sensitive, and sensitive to Him and His promptings in our day so that we might be a people who are obedient to Him so that we might be a people who are free from the things of this world, so that we might be a people who are fixed on the glory of Christ, so that we might be a people who are truly disciples, truly following our rabbi, truly becoming like Jesus with unveiled faces from one degree of glory to another. And from there, the Spirit begins to create within us a supernatural Christ-likeness as he produces what's known as the fruit of the Spirit. Paul just talked about it. We, we skipped over it, okay? The fruit of the Spirit. Where there once was anger, there is now peace and patience. 
Where there once was jealousy, there's now kindness and love. Supernatural, right? You can be kind. You can be loving, right? This is a supernatural kindness. Again, Charles Stanley in that book, he says, There's love for those who do not love you in return. Joy in the midst of painful circumstances. Peace when something you were counting on does not come through. Patience when things aren't going fast enough for you. Man, I need that. Kindness towards those who treat you unkindly. Goodness towards those who have been intentionally insensitive to you. Faithfulness when friends have proven unfaithful. Gentleness towards those who have handled you roughly. And self-control in the midst of intense temptation. As you begin walking in the Spirit, you will walk away from heated conversation and think, wow, I didn't lose my temper. You'll finish around with your kids and realize you didn't raise your voice. You will be asked to go somewhere. You have no business going. And you will hear yourself saying, no thank you. Eventually, you will overhear someone saying something to the effect of, I don't know what's gotten into him or her, but they're really different. You see, spirit-filled Christians, they're not perfect. They're not supernaturally perfect. It's not true. They're literally battling every day, every single second against the flesh. And they don't win every battle. They're not going to win every battle. But they know they're battling. They're not being deceived into just going through the motions and saying they're a Christian when they're really not. They know they're battling. They know they're in it. They're winning more than they're losing. The Spirit's producing victory over sin in their lives. And their response sets them apart. Their obedience to the Spirit sets them apart. And so here it is, friends. We've been walking through this series over the past five weeks. Five weeks, we talk about this. The, the call to, of Jesus is to come and follow him, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, to, to leave the tax collector's booth, to leave our nets, to leave our comforts, to leave our securities, and to follow after him, to, 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 to live lives of radical obedience, to be with him, to be covered in the dust of our rabbi, as we've talked about this idea, to emulate him in every way, to do what he did, to be with him and to do what he did, to study his life and to say, I, mean, I want to live just like Jesus. And there's something in us, if we're followers of Jesus, I mean, that's the life that I want to live. That's the life I want to live. That's, that is the life I want to live. But for so many of us in this room, so many of us, we, we've tried and we have failed. And it's been weary and it's been exhausting. And we need weight to turn to wonder, as we sung earlier in our gathering. And it's only through the Spirit, as we, as we come before Christ with unveiled faces, the Spirit within us leads us from one degree of glory to another and reshapes our minds and reshapes our hearts into, the, into that of Christ. Only that's going to sustain you in this journey. Otherwise, you, you can get fired up and you can say, I got a new journal, I got new pens, I got a new Bible, I got all the new tools, I got all these new fun things. All right, I'm going to do all this stuff. It, none of those things are going to sustain you. I'm not ripping on them. It's great, good, great, do that. We must walk by, be led by, and live by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in our lives. We must learn what that means. We must give our lives to learning that if we're actually going to be formed into the image of Christ and live out the way of his kingdom for the rest of our days and walk the path of flourishing. Let me pray for you guys. Let's pray. 
Jesus, we come before you this morning and just, just declaring in this place and admitting in this place that we do not have it all together, that we are an imperfect people trying to serve a perfect, spotless, blemishless king who has rescued us and redeemed us through the sweetness of his grace, mercy, and kindness towards us. I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see our, our lack of ability under our own power, but that with you, all things are possible. And so would we give our lives, would we, would we give our moments, not just our days, not just our weeks, not just our months, not just our years, but our moments to obedience, our moments to, to walking with the Spirit. That right now, just in the stillness, that we would listen for his voice. Holy Spirit, would you remind us of who we are in Christ? Would you remind us that the veil has been removed? And that we see things the world does not see. Would you bring it into focus for us? Would we be overcome with his glory and his grace? things that rob us of our flourishing, the things of the evil one, the things of this world, would they be brought to nothing? Would they be distorted and dead to us as Christ becomes more and more and more alive to us? Would you diminish the works of the flesh in us and produce the fruit of the Spirit in us? Do the work that we cannot do. But more than anything, more than anything, more than anything, would you hold us fast to you? Would you help us to walk with you? To be led by you? To live with you? We cannot do this alone. We cannot do it without you. So fill us this day. our affections for Christ. Increase our humility and our obedience and our love for our King. Pray these things in His name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, friends. Why don't you guys stand? We're going to sing one last song together as we leave this place.